Now, all this modern technology made war more horrifying than it had ever been before. In 1914, the war started. I won't go into the details as to how it did, but it did. The King of England had told his troops that they would be home by the time the leaves fell. Well, by Christmas, the war was already supposed to be over two months ago. Many of the soldiers were sick of war. At this point, the war had been bogged down into trenches. Any attempt to advance would result in the massive slaughter of soldiers to the point where most people just spent their time in the trenches waiting for one side to try and come over so they could kill them. I suppose something about Christmas brings out the best in people. These British and German soldiers who had been busy fighting and killing each other. On Christmas, I suppose they took a moment to say they saw through the fog of war. That they thought, you know, why should we kill people on such a special holiday? Many of those soldiers were the ones who partook in the Christmas truce, along with German soldiers. I'm sure you've heard the stories of men in the trenches, you know, sharing cigarettes playing soccer and all of that and you know of course soldiers being sent you know massive gift baskets from their king or kaiser or from their family people attending mass together even if they're from different nations I, a lot of the times the story of the christmas truce is told as kind of a testament to humanity that you know even in the most brutal war we had ever seen up until that point I guess you could say some kind of light poked through, but I'm not sure about all that because the following year the Christmas truce didn't happen. It had been a one-time thing. I I guess it says something about us. You know, you know my grandfather's name is Natali because he was born on Christmas. But he, the, the only reason he didn't end up going to World War One is because when they, they blew the whistle and they called all the men out of the factories to, to go to war, he was in the infirmary with a broken leg because he hurt it hauling rocks. So it's kind of funny, he probably, if he hadn't gotten hurt, he probably would have been in the trenches during the Christmas truce.
sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this beast be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Look, fence. got a white Christmas again, but unless you're traveling by reindeer and sleigh, it's rough going out there. Be sure to drive carefully and fasten your seat belts. The roads are slippery and the traffic is already heavy. Everybody's heading home for the holidays. After all, Christmas time is family time. 
Time to bring back all those good old traditions. I remember something our family always used to do at Christmas, back when I was a kid. We used to make gifts for each other. Nothing big, just little homemade tokens to go along with the store-bought presents. My grandmother used to make the kids mittens, you know, with the string that went around our neck so we wouldn't lose them. I still wear mine today, but, you know, all in all, it was kind of a nice custom. You know, it's kind of fun to reminisce about the good old days. That's a luxury we have at the end of the year, indulging in a bit of nostalgia. Hey, if last-minute shopping's bugging you, take a trip to Markov's. Christmas was a big deal in my family, but sort of disconnected from any particular meaning. Tension between my lapsed parents and devout grandparents resulted in a compromise around the rituals. Family meals, gifts, carols. Which is not to say we didn't love it. My father in particular, otherwise bitter towards his childhood faith, had a strange anxiety about our Christmas routine being identical to the one he'd known as a child, with the exception of Midnight Mass, of course. I remember a sense of awe at the nativity speech in the Charlie Brown Christmas special like I was getting a peek behind the curtain at some real magic which I only vaguely understood by the way of my grandparents. Inevitably I began to take Christmas for granted, and as a teenager I ruined my fair share of them, showing up with a piss-poor attitude expecting gifts, treating family gatherings like an imposition. It culminated in a department store robbery a few weeks before Christmas when I was 18. I've told that story elsewhere and I won't get into it here. But really, what really sticks with me today is the memory of watching the news reports the next day. They interviewed Christmas shoppers whose plans had been thwarted by the police discovering the crime the next morning and co- closing the mall for the day. An elderly woman, someone's grandmother, looked straight into the camera and said, It's Christmas. Whoever did this is a mean, rotten Grinch. My friends and I laughed, but even then it stung. I spent a fair chunk of my share of the money booking an anti-Christmas punk rock show on December 26th of that year. I put a picture of Satan on the flyer and thought it was pretty hilarious. Shortly after that I was arrested. I stopped laughing. Christmas in prison was more or less another day, marked only by a few charitable gestures. The meal was slightly nicer than normal. Small gift bags were delivered to the cell by Catholic charities along with a tract telling the story Linus had told when I was a kid. If you were lucky, your family could afford to buy a gift basket full of junk food through the state commissary. I white-knuckled it through my first Christmas, appreciating what I'd left behind for the first time. My second Christmas inside, I did something that would have been unthinkable a year earlier, and I answered a flyer seeking volunteers for the Catholic choir at the Chapel of St. Dismas in Summer State Prison. Deacon Jirasi called me into his office, skeptically flipping through my file while asking me questions. I managed to assure him that while I wasn't exactly a believer, I was trying to be more open-minded. No, I no longer considered myself an anarchist. I wasn't going to start any trouble or make a scene. He walked me to the altar, taught me to genuflect before the sacrament, and sat me in a corner with a book full of Christmas carol chords and an old acoustic guitar, brutal action that shredded my fingers. It felt kind of good to suffer. I was a lazy musician, but blessed with a good ear so I got up to speed in time to play the Midnight Mass a few weeks later. The centerpiece for the choir was a vocal solo of Ave Maria. Tommy, an older, quiet, white guy who worked in the library, sang it. I'd once foolishly asked Tommy when he was getting out. He told me never and offered no further explanation. Since there was no guitar for that part, I just sat and listened. It was the first time I'd heard him sing it since there was no reason to practice the solo with a full band. Halfway through the song, I found myself tearing up. I panicked, not wanting to cry in front of a chapel full of inmates, 
there wasn't anything to do but stare at the ground and hope no one noticed. I didn't speak a word of Latin. I had no idea what he was singing, just the name, Maria. The image of the nativity, the infant swallowed in his mother's arms. I forgot about the other cons and I wept. For a moment I was alone with Christ and his mother. No gifts, no big family meals, no ritual. I was 20 years old when I had my first real Christmas. told you that when I was a kid in school, they would call me in because they told me that my grandmother died. My grandmother had pancreatic cancer. And she was dying of it. So anyway, I went to school one morning and they pulled me in to the office. Counselor's office or whatever. And it was in the middle of like practicing for all these like Christmas songs. And the one song that I remember was this one. Wexford Carol. I actually didn't know it was called the Wexford Carol. I just knew like the melody and I've had it in my head like for 30 years, really. So I've always been drawn to this carol because when I was brought into the council's office and they told me my grandmother died and I was going home and blah blah blah. Was it Christmas time? You just dropped the chip, make it up. No. No, we were practicing for the song. Yeah, it was around Christmas time. In school, they practiced like months before. So it wasn't like December, it was like somewhere around September. It was like hot stone. We were practicing for the song. So something happened, and my grandmother got sick or whatever, went in the hospital. She didn't die until much later, but they came in and pulled me out at that point. So I remember. Christmas day, that's my name. 
Yeah, but I only know that because we were practicing that in school. So I know that. The rest of it, I don't know. And my favorite part was... Christmas Eve in the village, above the Grange Hall, a lone streetlight casts an incandescent glow on the fork in the road. It's an eyesore, but some things can be forgiven. The mill pond is no longer the mirrored admirer of the mountain. Its dam boards let out reduce it to a lurking black serpent in the dark. The small church on the hill is as it ever was, despite having burnt down in the 1820s and again a half century later. Wood heat, oil lamps, no electricity or plumbing, a wavy glow in the windows as we approach. The old caretaker Ronnie passes out a paper program and candle as we enter. He might have muttered Merry Christmas, but you can never be too sure. He is the same permanently frowned but well-meaning old man as he was when I entered here as a kid some 30 years ago, and the same, no doubt, as when my parents walked down the aisle here in the 70s. People never change in the village until they do finally and forever. A stream of cold follows us in like a ghost and settles in silence on the jackets that everybody keeps on. The hard old pews creak as the few children wriggle in Christmas anticipation. A cough, a sniffle, coarse hands thumbing the hymn book. The pastor, who is sincere enough but always strikes me as clearly not from here, orates briefly, then announces the first hymn. The pump organist, well known for playing at a cadence too slow and an octave too high, leaves the singer, or me at least, struggling for breath. After the second or third hymn, I relinquished, conspicuously humming the tune. My mind, freed from concentration, turns to the black windows and the silent graves beyond, the ghosts of Christmas past. Sprawling under the naked maples are hundreds of graves with a handful of names spanning two centuries, but ending abruptly apparently to be continued in scattered suburban plots across the country. Those that left and now will never be back. One grave marks a child who came and never left, a victim of an accidental gun discharge back in the lumber camp days. Up until recently, his gravestone didn't have a name. My great-gram lays in the back corner next to her husband and brother, but oceans away from the rest of her family. 
I can hear her accent and voice echo over the pastures as clear as if I was still a boy. Caesar Augustus, Bethlehem. Nearby, Grampy grows roots too, no doubt donning his trademark, closed eyes and tight lip, who me smile, just like the time he gave my grandmother moose turd jewelry for Christmas. Captain Cook isn't buried here, but rather up on the opposite hill at the edge of his barnyard beneath the mountain. I remember the tears on his son's face when the bell above us rang as they lowered him into the ground. Christmas is about birth, but as with everything, death is forever observing. He was born in a manger, died on the cross, and was resurrected. But we will become ghosts soon enough, lying out back, humming along to silent night, flickering the candles in the pews. Fall on your knees, hear the angel voices. shining it is the night of our dear Savior's birth long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth music was his life, it was not his livelihood, and it made him feel so happy, it made him Tout le monde est prêt? Oui, oui. Pinto? Oui. Théodule? Oui. Coco? 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 Oui, oui, j'arrive, je suis prêt! My favorite Christmas movie is Jingle All the Way from 1996, directed by Brian Levant, uh, written by Randy Cornfield, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sinbad, Phil Hartman, Rita Wilson. And by the way, Rita Wilson, I sometimes get a little bit confused. Um, Rita Wilson was is married to Tom Hanks, right? Not Arnold. I forget who the lady was that was married to, oh, Maria Shriver. Jake Lloyd, the kid from The Phantom Menace, is in it. And it's a great film. It's, um, you know, there are people that will tell you that this is, you know, a movie that is so bad. It's good. But I am of the opinion that it is just good. That it sets out to do exactly what it wants to do. And, um, and there are, uh, actually, I, I was about to say there are problems with it, but there really aren't any problems with it. 
as a in terms of the filmmaking really and it has so many great moments and it's so it's kind of the way that it works okay i'm going to tell you what it's about so so arnold is and it takes place in minnesota it takes place in minneapolis which is a great place for it to take place um and uh, i hate minneapolis but anyway but that's personal um but so arnold and and i just i want to put in a word for arnold because he really is one of the most incredible people that has ever lived on the planet you know most he, he first of all he's the greatest bodybuilder in the world he was also a self-made millionaire he was a businessman he owned his own business in like southern california laying doing masonry and so so already you have he's the greatest bodybuilder of all time which you know I'm, I'm not that's not my thing or whatever but you have to say that just being the greatest of anything would be enough that would be enough like if i if i was the greatest podcaster of all time that would be enough for me but but arnold was the greatest bodybuilder of all time and then he was a self-made millionaire businessman and then he was the biggest hollywood action star to ever live i mean he basically transformed what was possible as an action star with roles like uh, Terminator and Terminator 2, Commando, and Conan the Barbarian. And, um, and then he transformed from just action star into just movie star. One of the biggest movie stars to ever live. And then, if that wasn't enough, and I understand that his political career, uh, you know, can be seen as kind of cringe, as kind of a mess, and, and nobody likes his political career, I don't think. I, I don't think there's anybody that likes his political career. I don't think that there are Democrats that like it and Republicans that like it. But, nevertheless, he became the governor of the, the biggest state in all of the, in the, mo the most powerful state in the most powerful country in the world. So he was the, the greatest bodybuilder in the world. He was a self-made millionaire businessman. He's the greatest action star in the world. And he is one of, and really, I mean, you could just say he was one of the most powerful politicians in the world. All of that in a lifetime. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good, good. You done burning leaves over there? <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. I was working. I don't know, I was in Milford, I think. And I, I see it, and I'm like, I told, I, that looks really familiar. I, I told her, I said, don't go easy on it just because of Blake. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. We're going to get going. Hey, if I could have everyone's attention, please. 
we can start moving out outside, please, if you'd like. We're going to have a, a poem read, and then Parish Hill, of course, is going to sing Christmas carols. And we'll get started. I am really surprised on this rainy evening to see everybody willing to stand out there and listen to something I wanted to read to you. And I have a captive audience at last. <laughs> My name is Adelaide Northrup, and as most of you probably already know, I got appointed Chaplin's Poet Laureate uh, about a, over a year ago, and it was the biggest shock. <laughs> Anyway, um, tonight I wanted to give you some feeling of the season before we turn on the lights to our wonderful tree. And this is called the Evergreen. Evergreen, resilient as the years go by. This tree will flourish though the snow stands high. Beneath its boughs, a sheltering well for small birds, resting deer and mice. When winter, bitter winds throw down a coat of ice, cones offer seeds much needed. One sometime home is balsam-scented, another with fresh cedar bedded. Blue needles shiver in the breeze. Clouds swallow whole the highest trees whose short limbs in close embrace will form an armature for rhyme, which veils them with a well-starched lace. Sheltered from the north wind's trace, they bow with grace to wintertime. One tree is cut in dwindling light, Taken in that sacred night, a secret cold drains from its height. It's given a place of honor, bright with offered stars and candlelight, to weaken winter's appetite for darkness. Carrying the scent of mystery, gifts honor ancient history. Happy Christmas season to everyone.
Fall is calm. Fall is bright. Round yon virgin mother and child. Holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly Glory stream from heaven afar Heavenly hosts sing hallelujah Christ the Savior is born Christ the Savior Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with redawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Chez Isidore, une soirée à la mode de chez nous avec les musiciens et les danseurs d'Isidore Soucy, le gigueur. Because okay, the, if you haven't seen the movie, okay, Arnold is a he's like a like a furniture or a mattress salesman in Minneapolis, and he, uh, you know, he's not a good dad. He's a mattress, he, he prioritizes work over family. His son is kind of like, uh, you know, obsessed with this Turbo Man um, television program. And, uh, and Arnold doesn't even really know about that. He doesn't know what responsibilities he has as a father. He misses his son's karate class. And this is about, this movie is about him redeeming himself as a father and getting a Turbo Man action figure for his son at the last minute, when the Turbo Man action figure is, of course, already totally sold out. And so he has to go on Christmas Eve on an adventure, and the adventure leads to various episodes. You know, there's an, so the film is slightly episodic for a 
portion where basically he's competing with Sinbad and Sinbad kind of rep the, the Sinbad character kind of represents this loser shadow father that Arnold could be because because Sinbad is a cuckold he is a fired postal worker and this is when this is from a time when being a postal worker signified that you had the potential to be um, a mass murderer. So Sinbad's walking around with this floppy um, winter postman hat, and he's oversharing to anybody who will listen that, you know, that his wife has left him, and that his, uh, you know, that his kid doesn't like him, and he's drinking schnapps straight out of the bottle. And he and Arnold are kind of in competition at various times teamed up and in competition to get this Turbo Man doll. And, um, well, they call it a doll. It's an action figure. But but in the movie, they refer to it as a doll. And, and the stakes are very high for Arnold because at the same time that, um, you know, that he's also trying not to disappoint his son, he's also trying not to disappoint his wife, who's played by Rita Wilson. And um, there's an interesting thing that plays on my mind in the film is that Arnold's wife in the film is Rita Wilson. Rita Wilson in real life uh, is married to Tom Hanks, but I think sometimes that she was married to Arnold, even though Arnold was actually married to uh, Maria Shriver. But um, but so, so the stakes are high for Arnold because not only at, at, at risk is his relationship with his young son, also at risk is his marriage, because living next door to Arnold and his wife and family is uh, Phil Hartman in a genius and then Phil Hartman goes harder than he I mean and I think Sinbad and Phil Hartman they kind of go harder than than they even needed to for this movie um, and Phil Hartman plays this character who um, <laughs> who <laughs> all the ladies in the neighborhood seem to rely on as a handyman and this and, but there's a suggestion that you know that he's um you know maybe like a sexual dynamo and so he has this like threatening sexual dynamo living next door who's also like the perfect he's you know he's a I don't know if he's a widower or he's a divorcee but he's the perfect dad and and there's a great scene where, you know, Arnold's about to go get the Turbo, you know, try and go try and get the Turbo Man toy, and his neighbor Phil Hartman, Ted, that's his name, Ted, says, oh yeah, I got mine for my son weeks ago, and it's nestled safely under our tree. And it's a great line, it's like, Phil Hartman says, nestled safely under our tree, and, um, and then at a certain point in the movie, you know, this comes back to haunt Arnold and anyway um and and so so Phil Hartman's this perfect dad who also is like he can bake cookies and he has a reindeer which at one point Arnold and the reindeer are drinking beer to get you know have the sad sack scene where they're drinking beer together <laughs> they're drinking grain belt which is this Minneapolis beer it's a great reference um you know, they're drinking Grain Belt together, and then the reindeer's lit lapping Grain Belt out of a bowl. Vous êtes présenté par vos marchands Gold Star et Gold Stamp qui vous offrent des timbres primes. 
Do I sound really bad? No. Okay. I'm recording. Yeah. It's hard, John. <laughs> like, you guys suck. The car's I can't get yours. Alright, are we ready? Jiggity jig. It's Dominic the donkey. Jiggity jig. The Italian Christmas donkey. La la la. La 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 la. La la la. La 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 la. Santa's got a little friend. His name is Dominic. The cutest little donkey. You never see him kick. When Santa visits his paisans with Dominic, he'll be Because the reindeer cannot climb the hills of Italy Hey, jiggity jig It's Dominic the donkey Jiggity jig The Italian Christmas donkey La 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 The la 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 Children sing and clap their hands and Dominic starts to dance. They talk Italian to him and he even understands. Kumaras and Kumpadas do the dance a tad and tell. When Santa Nicola comes to town and brings a chucha in. Oh, jiggity jig, ee-haw, ee-haw. It's Dominic the donkey, jiggity jig. The Italian Christmas donkey, la la la, la 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 la. That's pretty good, I think. So, so there's little episodes and, and, and various cameos, appearances um, by, uh, by there's a great scene. And one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Arnold has gone to a couple of toy stores. And, and, and not only has he gone to a couple of toy stores, but there's a scene where he's trying to get this ball from this little girl in a ball pit. And it looks like he's like being like he's a pedophile or something. And. And so all these women start attacking him with purses. And this Jim and this Santa figure, played by Jim Belushi, basically says, Hey, we've got bootleg turbo men at this warehouse. And so Arnold has to go to the warehouse, the shady warehouse, and then this music comes on. Backdoor Santa. A song, Backdoor Santa. They call me Backdoor Santa. I make my runs at the break of day. It's this great, you know, Chicago blues tune Clarence Carter and there's like midget Santas 
And then there's this outstanding fight scene between Arnold and the Santas. And, um, and it all, and so, so Jim, and Jim Belushi is the Santa, and he's really good. And then, and there's a scene also where Martin Mole is in it, and he's giving away, he's allegedly giving away Turbo Men over the radio, but it turns out that, you know, he's just giving out a gift certificate, and Sinbad blows up a package, because he's with the U.S. Postal Service, and he blows up a package, um... And all these cops are like, this cop who explodes doesn't die because the movie is in, it's a comic, it's a cartoon come to life. And that's the thing is that there are people, people that are going to tell you that this is a movie, this is a bad movie and the acting is weird. And I agree that it's strange, but, um, it's a, it's a cartoon movie. It's a cartoon come to life. And I should say that, uh, you know, that I find I, I I have a theory that Tommy Wiseau, who is the director of The Room, which is a very strange movie, as well, has seen this film, and this was a big influence on him, and Arnold's performance was a big influence on his cadence and delivery in The Room, and some of the lines, um, like early in the film where Arnold is like making his sales calls. And he keeps repeating, like, this line, you're my favorite customer. And that line, there's a very strange moment in the room where this lesbian shopkeeper says, you're my favorite customer. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense in the film at all, but I feel like Tommy Wiseau took it from Jingle All the Way. And he, and there's a scene where Jim Belushi is um, making fun of, um, is it Jim? Yeah, Jim Belushi is making fun of uh, Arnold and, you know, calling him a chicken and doing a chicken noises. And there's that very strange scene in the room where they're all doing the chicken, you know, bark, 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 cheek, cheek, cheek. Um, so I feel like, you know, this is a, was a fundamental influence on Tommy Wiseau. And, um, and so the, the film culminates in, um, you know, in, in a climax where, where Arnold becomes Turbo Man in a, you know, a Minneapolis Christmas parade, and he's able to uh, get a Turbo Man doll for his son while he is dressed as Turbo Man and flying around and defeating um, uh, Turbo Man's, uh, uh, you know, rival, arch rival, who is, by the way, is Sinbad. answering machine pick it up hello no one is available to take your call please leave a message after the tone lights please the mandatory jolliness radio hour will continue right after this message about what you can do to help get that drunken brother-in-law to somehow make his insufferable moffats quit running circuits through their shit based on candy canes or whatever the hell it is 
because they're always an inch away, then half an inch away, then an eighth of an inch away from yanking the power cord right out of the wall. And as sure as there's an X in Christmas, that tree is coming down on the 25th, and it's always those little Christers who end up doing it. Sorry? Angels. Angels! Kind of prank call. Emil, how's it going? What's, is it Santa Claus coming Santa Claus coming to town. I can eat that one. That one I kind of do. You help on this one, Emil? Well, there's a lot more lyrics than I thought there was. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So you better be good. You better be up. You better watch out. I'm telling you. I thought you were just saying die with donkey. Santa Claus has the cutest donkey. Ready, Neil? You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. So you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming out. There ain't no candy quite as good as a good old-fashioned root beer barrel. When you're standing at the counter at your hometown Cracker Barrel, you're feeling right and looking good in your go-to-town apparel, and the children on the sidewalks are all singing off-key Christmas carols, accompanied in harmony by stray dogs now turning feral. And who should walk in off the street but your very best friend Daryl, who hollers out to greet you in the style of Lewis Carroll, you answer, smile when you call me that, or say it at your peril. And by the way, I have an extra. Would you like a root beer barrel? Son, played by Jake Lloyd, uh, Jamie. Jamie! 
That's a funny thing that um, Arnold says in the movie over and over. He's talking about his son. Jamie! Um, and Jamie is impressed. He takes the Turbo Man doll and he gives the Turbo Man doll to Sinbad so that Sinbad can give it to his son and be a hero to his son as well. And, and so the movie is a, is a story of redemption. It's very much about you know, kind of the materialism that surrounds Christmas. Critics criticized the movie for some reason, for this reason that it was materialistic. I, I don't, I don't think it's overly materialistic. I do, I do think that um, there is an expectation of gift giving during Christmas, and that there's pressures that come from the outside to get certain gifts, and it, it adds to to stress. Um, I don't think it's inappropriate for a child to want something, and I think it's good when parents can figure out what to get for their kids. And uh, anyway, I think that this movie is absolutely delightful, and it's so zany and wacky to be really entertaining. And uh, you know, so I will I will continue to watch it on Christmas every year and also at other times throughout the year it's a it's an achievement um, apparently it was a very you know it was a very rushed production and I think you can kind of see that in um, Arnold's performance you know that I, I think if he had somehow had more time to prepare for this role that we would have gotten something different but I think um, as it stands uh, he he does a really good job. The performance he gives, where he's like, it's kind of like he's a stranger in a, in a universe, you know, that he's that he's an alien to this universe, where he he doesn't understand his son and his desires, and, and so you know you can see um, that unfamiliarity, you know, because of his unfamiliarity kind of with the material, you know, and and. Fortunately, they have these great natural performers in Sinbad and Phil Hartman who can just work with whatever material and do a great job. You get the feeling like Sinbad is just, you know, riffing. And, and Sinbad is a great riffer. I saw him perform live uh, in Portland at, at Helium, and he, I don't think he'd written anything. For this performance, he had another comedian on stage with him, a younger comedian, that he would just riff off of, and it was hysterical. I don't remember. I, I don't remember practically anything he said, but it was excellent. Merry Christmas. I'm a novelist, and I suppose I've made the story. I write, I suppose, 
Though I know for a fact that I made it up. But yet I keep fancying that it must have happened somewhere at some time. That it must have happened on Christmas Eve in some great town in a time of terrible frost. I have a vision of a boy, a little boy, six years old or even younger. This boy woke up that morning in a cold, damp cellar. He was dressed in a sort of little dressing gown and was shivering with cold. There was a cloud of white steam from his breath, and sitting on a box in the corner, he blew the steam out of his mouth and amused himself in his dullness, watching it float away. But he was terribly hungry. Several times that morning, he went up to the plank bed where his sick mother was lying on a mattress as thin as a pancake, with some sort of bundle under her head for a pillow. How had she come here? She must have come with her boy for some other town and suddenly fallen ill. The landlady who let the corners had been taken two days before to the police station. The lodgers were out and about as the holiday was so near, and the only one left had been lying for the last 24 hours dead drunk, not having waited for Christmas. In another corner of the room, a wretched old woman of 80, who had once been a children's nurse but was now left to die friendless, was moaning and groaning with rheumatism, scolding and grumbling at the boy so that he was afraid to go near her corner. He had got a drink of water in the outer room, but could not find a crust anywhere, and had been on the point of waking his mother a dozen times. He felt frightened at last in the darkness. It had long been dusk, but no light was kindled. Touching his mother's face, he was surprised that she didn't move at all, and that she was cold as the wall. It's very cold here, he thought. He stood a little, unconsciously letting his hands rest on the dead woman's shoulders. Then he breathed on his fingers to warm them, and then quietly fumbling for his cap on the bed, he went out of the cellar. He would have gone earlier, but he was afraid of the big dog, which would have been howling all day at the neighbor's door at the top of the stairs. But the dog was not there now, and he went out to the street. Mercy on us, what a town. He had never seen anything like it before. In the town from which he had come, it was always such black darkness at night. There was one lamp for the whole street. The little low-pitched wooden houses were closed up with shutters. There was no one to be seen in the street after dusk. All the people shut themselves up in their houses. There was nothing but the howling of packs of dogs, hundreds and thousands of them barking and howling all night. But there it was so warm, and he was given food. Well, here... Oh dear, if he only had something to eat. What a noise and rattle here. What light and what people. Horses and carriages and what a frost. The frozen steam hung in clouds over the horses, over in their warmly breathing mouths. Their hoofs clanged against the stones through the padry snow, and everyone pushed so. And oh dear, how he longed for some morsel to eat, and how wretched he suddenly felt. A policeman walked by and turned away to avoid seeing the boy. Here was another street. Oh, what a wide one. Here he would be run over for certain. How everyone was shouting, racing, and driving along. And the light, the light. And what was this? A huge glass window. And through the window a tree reaching up to the ceiling. It was a fir tree. And on it were ever so many lights 
gold papers and apples and little dolls and horses. And there were children clean and dressed in their best running about the room, laughing and playing and eating and drinking something. And then a little girl began dancing with one of the boys. What a pretty little girl. They could hear the music through the window. The boy looked and wondered and laughed, though his toes were aching with the cold and his fingers were red and stiff so that it hurt him to move them. And all at once the boy remembered how his toes and fingers hurt him and began crying and ran on. And again through another window pane he saw another Christmas tree. And on a table cakes of all sorts, almond cakes, red cakes, and yellow cakes. And three grand young ladies were sitting there. And they all and they gave the cakes to anyone who went up to them. And the door kept opening. Lots of gentlemen and ladies went in from the street. The boy crept up, suddenly opened the door and went in. What was this again? People were standing in a crowd admiring. Behind a glass window, there were three little dolls, dressed in red and green dresses. And exactly, exactly as though they were alive. One was a little old man sitting and playing a big violin. The two others were standing close by and playing little violins and nodding in time. And looking at one another. And their lips moved and they were speaking. Actually speaking. Only one couldn't hear through the glass. And at first the boy thought they were alive. And when he grasped that they were dolls, he laughed. He had never seen such dolls before. And he had no idea they were such dolls. And he wanted to cry, but he felt amused, amused by the dolls. All at once he fancied that someone caught at his smock behind. A wicked big boy was standing beside him and suddenly hit him on the head, snatched off his cap and tripped him up. The boy fell down on the ground and at once there was a shout. He was numb with fright. He jumped up and ran away. He ran, not knowing where he was going, ran at the gate at someone's courtyard and sat down behind a stack of wood. They won't find me here. Besides, it's dark. He sat huddled up and was breathless from fright. And all at once, quite suddenly, he felt so happy. His hands and feet suddenly left off aching and grew so warm, as warm as though he was on a stove. Then he shivered all over, and then he gave a start. Why? He must have been asleep. How nice to have a sleep here. I'll just sit here a little and go look at, look at the dolls again, said the boy, and smiled thinking of them, just as though they were alive. And suddenly he heard his mother singing over him. Mommy, I am asleep. How nice it is to sleep here. Come to my Christmas tree, little one. A soft voice suddenly whispered over his head. He thought that this was his mother. But no, it was not she. Who was calling him, he could not see. But someone bent over and embraced him in the darkness. And he stretched out his hands to him. And, and all at once. Oh, what a bright light. Oh, what a Christmas tree. And yet it was not a fir tree. He had never seen a tree like that. Where was he now? Everything was bright and shining, and all around him were dolls, but no, they were not dolls. They were little boys and girls, only so bright and shining. 
They all came flying around him. They all kissed him, took him, and carried him along with him, and he was flying himself. He saw that his mother was looking at him and laughing joyfully. Mother, mother, oh, how nice it is here, mother. And again he kissed the children and wanted to tell them all at once of those dolls in the shop window. Who are you, boys? Who are you, girls? He asked, laughing and admiring them. This is Christ's Christmas tree, they answered. Christ always has a Christmas tree on this day for the little children who have no tree of their own. And he found out that all these little boys and girls were children just like himself, that some had been frozen in the baskets in which they had as babies been laid on the doorsteps of well-to-do Petersburg people. Others had been boarded out with a Finnish woman by the foundling and had been suffocated. Others had died at their starred mother's breasts in the Samara famine. Others had died in the third-class railway carriages from the foul air. And yet they were all here. They were all like angels about Christ. And he was in the midst of them and held out his hands to them and blessed them with their sinful mothers. And the mothers of these children stood on one side weeping. Each one knew her boy or girl. And the children flew up to them and kissed them and wiped away their tears with their little hands and begged them not to weep because they were so happy. And down below in the morning, the porter found the little dead body of the frozen child on the woodstack. They sought out his mother too. She had died before him. They had met before the Lord God in heaven. Why have I made up such a story, so out of keeping with an ordinary diary, and a writer's above all? And I promised two stories dealing with real events. But that is just it. I keep fancying that all this may have really happened. That is, what took place at the cellar and on the woodstack. But as for Christ's Christmas tree, I cannot tell you whether that could have happened or not. I found God that night at midnight mass in Summer State Prison. It still took me a few years to know what to do with him. I didn't immediately become devout or even regularly attend church until many years after that. The one thing that did change immediately was that I became ardently and unironically pro-Christmas. I pushed regulations as far as I could get away with when it came to decorating my cell. One year I even built a little tree out of cardboard and bartered our supplies. But I still didn't have anything resembling a normal Christmas until a few years later when they shipped me out to a halfway house deep in the woods of eastern Connecticut to spend my last year. I'd only been there for about two months by December. I hadn't earned the privilege of outside passes yet, so while I'd been out of jail, I still hadn't actually gone anywhere. 
When I wasn't in groups, I mostly sat outside and played the house guitar. Like the one in the jail chapel. It had terrible action and tore up my fret hand fingers. Most of the other people in the house were city boys that didn't come outside in the cold. So I had the porch and yard pretty much to myself that time of year. One day when I was sitting outside strumming, one of the house managers, a reformed ex-con named Milton who had taken a liking to me, walked up and asked half in jest if I knew how to play anything besides devil music on that thing. I said maybe and I asked him why. He told me he had a Christmas tradition of driving around to all the other residential programs operated by the agency and singing carols to the residents with a few of the more trusted guys in our house. I hadn't graduated to step two yet, but he figured he could pull some strings to get me approved since I was the only one who could play guitar. We spent a few weeks practicing in the basement. It wasn't pretty. There wasn't a real singer among us, and the guitar wasn't much better at staying in tune. Having assembled a passable 10 to 15 minute set list, we set out on Christmas Eve in Dollar Store Santa Hats and began making the rounds. We sang at the Bridge House, the Connection House, and an all-female halfway house called The Intersection. Milton kept a close eye on us at that one. We were still a little rough on the ears, but got a rock star's welcome from our bored and housebound audiences. Milton had promised us a stop at Dunkin' Donuts when it was all over, but first we had one last stop in the nearest mill town that passed for a city. It was a small hospice facility for addicts with terminal HIV or AIDS and a cluttered old Victorian home that had been retrofitted. The walls were almost entirely covered with a mix of inspirational posters and flyers advertising various support groups for gay men. Four or five frail men in their fifties shuffled down into the dining room and told us that no one else felt up to coming downstairs to watch, and we played. We ran out of songs and they didn't want us to leave, so we played the ones that we cut from the set list. Their eyes were still pleading when we ran out of those, so we played a few more twice as an encore. I realized that no one was visiting the next day for Christmas. No one ever visited that place. If you still had anyone around willing to visit, you wouldn't have ended up there in the first place. After that, we went to get our coffee, and I stood in the lobby sipping it, sort of shell-shocked. I hadn't been in a Dunkin' Donuts or anywhere for years, since I was a teenager. Milton walked up to me and asked me if I was alright. I nodded, and he asked me if I ever thought I'd be so happy to drink some shitty coffee and a Dunkin' Donuts on Christmas Eve. He told me to hang on to that feeling, and so I did.
Yeah.